going to go ahead right away and just head on into uh, our reading for the morning as well as, as well as our teaching. So we're over in Psalm 129 today. And the psalmist begins by saying, greatly they, have reflect, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. And then just like some of the other psalms, he does this thing again where he kind of goes, come on, choir. Yes, Israel, say it together. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, and he cut the cords of the wicked. He says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves of his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So again, for a little different way of hearing it, we'll head over to the message and Eugene Peterson puts it this way. They've kicked me around ever since I was young. This is how Israel tells it. They've kicked me around ever since I was young. But they've never could put me down. Their plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back. But God wouldn't put up with it. He sticks with us. Then God ripped the harness of the evil plowman to shreds. Oh, let all those who hate Zion grovel in humiliation. Let them be like grass in shallow ground that withers before the harvest, before the farmlands can, can gather it in and the harvesters gather their crops, before the neighbors have the chance to call out and say, congratulations on your wonderful crop. We bless you in God's name. Lord, we're grateful for this psalm. And I pray today as we have a chance to to dig into it, that we will understand more completely the journey you have us on and that we will walk in a way that is, that is humble and in a way that is in accordance with your desires. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been on a journey. That's the best way to describe it. It's a journey. The Psalms of Ascents. These Psalms that were sung as the people of Israel three different times a year would go from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship at a particular festival. And along the way, on this journey, they would sing. And, and it, was, it, was a, it was an incredible journey. And what, here's what we know about journeys. Journeys, uh, they often start out with ex excitement anticipation. You're going to go on vacation tomorrow to Florida. We can't get you to talk about anything else. You are psyched. You are pumped. You get to the airport, nothing's going to stop you. Okay, maybe TSA is going to stop you. But beyond that, nothing's going to stop you. You're going to get on that trip. You're ready to go. You're excited. You can't wait. And that's the way these folks have felt. They've been looking forward to this trip back to Jerusalem. And they're excited. And they can't wait. But here's a little something I've learned about journeys. Journeys can get a little bit long. Celebrated a birthday not too long ago, and I've had to make this confession to myself I am no longer middle age unless I'm going to live to 116. There's, there's, there's more behind me than there is ahead of me. And, and when you look at life that way or when you look at a journey that way, what often happens on a journey as you've progressed for a while is that you start to run into parts of the journey that, that are not as exciting, they're not as fun. They even they have their fair share of adversity and trial. 
So we've been on this journey that goes from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. You know, we do, we do 139 today, and what you know is there's not a whole lot more to go. Most of this journey is behind us. Most of this journey is done. And for the most part, it's been a pretty positive journey singing along the way. I mean, yes, they started by saying, of course you don't feel at home. This isn't your home. This world is not your home. You're a citizen of heaven. And in fact, if you feel at home here, something's wrong with you. You're messed up. That's home. Let's keep our eyes on home. And so he says, you're going to have to rely on God. You'll need this reorientation type every week. Come together. Get your eyes back on God. You need your eyes upward. Not on the hills around you, not on the false gods, but on God himself. You need to realize that, that you're working in cooperation with God. And, and you can do things on your own, but it's going to fail. But if the Lord builds the house then your labor will not be in vain. He says you're surrounded just like the mountains surround, surround Jerusalem. God surrounds you. You're a participant in his work. And in all of this, we are to be joyful. So, so far, the journey has been positive. It's been, it's been a smile. It's been fun. But we wake up to Psalm 129, and he says sometimes the journey is tough. And basically for 129, 130, and 131, we're going to hit the reality of struggles. We're going to hit the reality of, of the trials that happen along the journey. In fact, what we find at this point in our journey is it's time for the journey to drag. It's time for it to get long and hard and bumpy. This is, I mean, if you're driving to Florida, this is right toward the end of Georgia and not too far from Florida, where you're just like, will this ever end. It keeps going and going and going. We've eaten at seven Cracker Barrels. We need to get to Florida. It's time to get to Florida. And in all of this, God says, persevere. Persevere. Don't let the length of the journey and don't let the difficulty of the journey keep you from persevering. I love this dictionary definition of perseverance. It's persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Along the way, we will run into difficulties and we will run into delays and we're tempted to say, I'm done. And God's saying to us, don't. Keep going. Keep pressing. Don't quit. There's a harvest of righteousness coming. If you don't quit, don't give up. So what the psalmist does he starts out by letting us know that Israel has not always had it easy. In fact, what he does, he gives, a, he gives a dramatic expression of pain and problems. He starts by saying, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. And he wants to make clear, this isn't the psalmist speaking personally. He's like, Israel, this is us. Greatly they have afflicted us from our youth. And, and he gives this little, this little history lesson in a, in a sentence of the nation of Israel. From their birth, they've had nothing but problems. From their birth, they've had nothing but opposition. I mean, there are only 70 people in the family when they say, let's go for refuge in Egypt. 400 years later, they're leaving Egypt as after a season of horrific slavery. They get to their promised land. They're hassled by the Philistines and all of these other people that live in the land. They're taken from their land for 70 years to captivity in Babylon. You even come to modern times, the last century, World War II, a maniacal madman says, I want to eliminate Jews from the face of the earth, and he kills 6 million 
in gas chambers. Think about that. It's crazy. Time and time again, these people have been afflicted from their very birth. Why is that? I'll tell you what, this is something, this is something supernatural going on here. Because in Genesis 3.15, God makes clear that someone's going to come along with a really heavy heel. And he's going to grind his heel in the head of the serpent, and the serpent will die. And the serpent doesn't like that story. And the serpent has been doing everything he can to thwart that story. And he knew that story involved God's people Israel, and he's been fighting them ever since their birth. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. It's a dramatic expression of pain and problems. Then what he does, he gives us a graphic illustration of suffering. So here's what he says. The plowers plowed my black. They made their long furrows. It is April. And I'll tell you what, for only about three months, I've been longing to plant a garden. I can't wait. I get out my little mantis tiller. I love this thing. It just, it grinds up everything in sight. Every year I'm like, why do we need a lawn? Let's just make it a garden. Let's go. Get the mantis tiller out there. Till that thing up. Let's go. I love, I love using this tiller. Well, that is fortunately a modern convenience that the people of Israel did not have. Back then they'd have a plow, wooden-handled plow with a blade on it, and they would put it behind their donkey or their, or their oxen or, or their best friend, and they'd, just, they'd plow along, they'd plow a deep furrow in the ground, and then they'd plant their seed along the way. And he says, here's what's happened to us. Our enemy got out his plow and he went up one side of our back, and he went down the other side of our back, and he left deep furrows in our backs. It might be a picture of what happened in Egypt as their backs were ripped, whipped raw while they were told, make bricks, and then make bricks without straw, and you keep going, and you keep working. It says, we have suffered, and we've suffered since our youth. But you know what's amazing? For the psalmist, the whole story is not a story of suffering. For the psalmist, the whole story is not a story of adversity. He throws in these pieces. He says, yet or but, or, or don't miss this. This is important. He says, yet they have not prevailed against me. I'm still here. I'm still standing. They've tried to wipe me out. It hasn't worked. He says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What he's basically saying there is, Lord picked up the plow of the enemy, threw it on the ground, smashed it. The Lord rescued us. He was there for us. And we have reason to have hope. The whole story is not our oppression. The whole story is not the problems. There's the part of the story, too, where God is very present and God is very real for us. We walk into this song this morning, and the words say, can't go back to the beginning, can't control what tomorrow may bring, but I know, I know here in the middle, this is the place that God is. And this is the place that I am. And God has some work that he's doing on me here in the middle. And so I continue. And so I persevere. And I keep going. But truth be told, it gets hard to persevere. It gets tough. I mean, it, it's easy to give an inspirational, come on, let's persevere speech. But the fact is, the problems are real. The trials are real. The hard times are very real. It gets hard to persevere. It gets hard to persevere in our lives when the opposition gets overwhelming. You just you have overwhelming opposition. 
Something so big, so huge, so unmanageable that there's nothing you're going to do about it. There's nothing. You don't have the resources. You don't have the ability to fight. Let's just imagine for a moment for some reason that Jeff Bezos decided to move in next to you. This is he's your new neighbor. He either downgraded significantly or you got a fantastic upgrade. But nonetheless, he's your new neighbor. Have you seen the reports of how much money Jeff Bezos made personally since the beginning of the pandemic? Are you ready? $58 billion personally he's, he's raked in. $58 billion. Done all right, I think. Imagine Jeff Bezos doesn't like the shed that you've put a little too close to, your pro- to his property, or there's something that you've done on your property that he's decided, I'm taking you to court. I don't know about you, but at that moment, I'm just going, I surrender. I surrender. Because 58 billion bucks goes a long way, and there's no way I can fight that overwhelming opposition. I quit. I give up. You may be in a situation where the, the opposition is overwhelming. Like, why would I even try to fight? Or how about when the circumstances are unchanging? You look back a year and you say, I've, I've been hoping for change in this, and, and it looks exactly the way it did the year before, and that looks the way it did the year before, and that looks the way it did the year before. A lot of times that happens for us in our relationships, marriage relationships and others, where, where we're hoping for some change, longing for a shift. We want to see something be a little bit different, and it's not. And our temptation is to say, nuke it, boom, get rid of it, start over again. Instead of accepting the message, persevere. How about when the promise is delayed? And I'm not necessarily talking about the specific promise of God. I'm just talking about the stuff that's supposed to happen in life. Like everyone around you, everyone around you is getting married and you're waiting. Or, or, or by now the babies should be arriving and they're not arriving for you and you're waiting. Or, or you see everybody else rising in their career and you just finally made it to head burger maker at Wendy's and you're like, this isn't, this isn't the future that I intended. The promise is delayed. And when the promise is delayed, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to quit. How about when the bad gets a little worse? One of the things I've learned being a little over 35 is this concept of the cumulative effect of life. That, you know, there's a bad that happens and then another bad that happens and another bad that happens and another bad that happens. And they're not always the biggest bads. Sometimes they're just little bads. They're small bads, but it's just enough more that it weighs us down. It's just enough more that we say, I've had it, I quit, I give up. This one's a little different twist. It's hard to persevere when we're bored. It's easy to keep going when it's exciting. It's, I know some of you, you go to Six Flags every day. I do not. I live a normal life. You know? It's, it's easy to want to quit when life gets boring, even the spiritual life. You know, you become a new believer and it's like everything is new and you're learning all this stuff and you're changing like crazy. But now you've been a believer for 10, 15 years and it's just, I don't know, it's just not as exciting as it used to be. And you're thinking, there's got to be something I could do to bring some, some zing back to this relationship with God. Or maybe I should try something else. Maybe, maybe it's time to test out a different religion or something else, but it, it's time to jump ship. When we get bored... It's easy to stop persevering. One of the best 
people I think in the Bible on the topic of perseverance is the Apostle Paul. This, this is one of his theme messages. He believed wholeheartedly in perseverance. Philippians 1.6, I love this verse. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the one who started it, he'll bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you're one of those people that you've got a lot of started projects, a lot of started projects, and the word finish is just not quite in your vocabulary, right? God's a finisher. If God starts it, God sees it through. If God started a good work in you, he's going to see it through to completion. He doesn't just go, oh, I forgot about that one, or I'm kind of sick of that one. He sees it through. He perseveres. Philippians 3, 13 to 14, again, common verses from Paul. He says, I don't, I don't consider myself that I've made it on my own, but this is the thing I do. I forget what lies behind. He says, there's nothing I can do my, about my past sin. There's nothing I can do about my past mistakes except allow those to bind me from moving forward. He says, I forget about that and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I just keep my eyes on that finish line and the finish line is Jesus and I don't stop looking in that direction. I keep going and persevering. It doesn't matter how many cramps are on my legs. I keep running. Galatians 6, 9, he says, let's not grow weary in doing good, for in due seasons we're going to reap a harvest of righteousness if we don't give up. But guess what? If you do give up, you don't get to see the harvest of righteousness. He says, keep going, keep persevering. It doesn't matter how hard it's been, don't quit now. Now you read these and you think, well, Paul, he's an inspirational dude. This guy is amazing. He should write a book. He actually wrote several he did all right. He's got a you know, better part of the Old Testament, New Testament here. Has Paul written all over it. Paul, you might think he had a charmed life. It's easy for him to talk perseverance. Let, let's, hear, let's hear Paul's personal testimony from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what he says. I've worked much harder than everyone else. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes, leather strips embedded with glass and stone across the back. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. I'd love this guy to send his resume to our church and see if we'd hire him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger in rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews. Why does he not quit? What's he doing? My goodness, Should, he's working for God. Shouldn't it be easier than this? In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And besides all that, I have the constant burden of caring for all these churches. This guy has been through it and back. And at any point along the way, it would have been easy for Paul to say, I think I've done enough. It's someone else's turn. Three whippings are enough. Let someone else take the others. But he keeps going. He keeps pressing. He keeps doing what God calls him to do because there is a heavenly prize, Jesus himself. <coughs> and so he does not quit. I love what Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There are probably three 
three chapters of the Bible that are North Stars for Dennis. One of them we're going to look at in a few weeks. Second one is Psalm 90, and the third one is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It speaks to life involved in ministry. And by ministry, I don't mean pastoring. I mean ministering. I mean the work that all of us do for Jesus. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he reminds us again, folks, you think a lot of yourself, guess what you're made of? Dust. God took some spit, he made some mud, and he made you. Boom, there you are, little mud ball. Your jar, your clay jar. And, and you have cracks at that. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So the picture is beautiful. You got those cracks, but there's light, gleaming light, shining through. And the gleaming light is the glory of God shining out, exposing that it's not about you, it's not about me. It's all about Him. Everything I'm going through, everything I'm doing, it's all about Him and His power being exposed in my life. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, so life can be at work in you. He finishes it out by saying, therefore, we do not lose heart. What's he saying? I don't quit. I don't give up. I don't, I don't yell surrender. I don't white flag it. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. I, I just read you the list. Did that sound light and momentary to you? That sounded like gloom, doom, and despair. But he's got his eyes on Jesus. He sees it differently. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. So we fix our eyes, not what is seen. We don't look at all the junk around us in the world. We don't look at all the problems. We don't look at all the stupid. We don't, we don't keep our eyes glued on, on the TV and on the news. That's, that's not it, right? We, we, we don't fix our eyes on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, it will burn, it will blow away. But what is unseen is absolutely eternal. <coughs> Paul says, persevere persevere. Persist in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Don't stop. Keep pressing. Keep moving. Now, the psalm takes an interesting turn, and it takes the type of turn that often happens when we've been under oppression for a while. One of the emotions that grabs us when we've been under oppression for a while is anger. We get angry. Sometimes it's not the oppression I'm experiencing. Someone else is experiencing oppression. And I look at their situation, and it makes me angry. There, this wells up in me. I'm like, this is wrong. It shouldn't be this way. And the psalmist, at this point, expresses some anger. He says, may all who hate Zion, everybody who hates Jerusalem, may they be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hands, nor the binder of the sheaves his arms, nor let the people who pass by give him a blessing. Don't let them say, may the Lord bless you. Don't let it happen. 
So let's just unfold this a little bit. One of the things he says here is, you know, let them be like grass on the rooftops. I, I don't know if you've ever seen a grass rooftop. If you're one of our students, you've been to Green Lake, you've gone to Cristiano's, you're in the main restaurant and you look out and there are a bunch of little houses across the, across the parking lot. And at least one or two of those, they planted a grass rooftop. So you literally see grass instead of shingles growing on the roof. Now that grass rooftop looks fantastic right now. In April, cooler weather, lots of water. Oh man, swaying in the breeze. It looks beautiful. But give it an August. Give it some heat. Give it some drought. And it is completely dried up and useless. And part of what he's trying to help us to understand is these enemies that for us seem so overwhelming and so oppressive, they really don't have as deep a roots as we all think. They really are not as deep-rooted as we all think. And in no time at all, they're drying up. They dry up to the point that, that you can't even grab a fistful of grass and have a harvest from it. It doesn't happen. He says, don't even let them be blessed by people. What do we have going here? The question I would ask is, is this an expression of righteous indignation? Righteous indignation is, is a form of anger, but, it, but it's anger that's a godly anger. It's truly a godly anger. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, if this is a righteous indignation, is this kind of anger normal for a Christ follower? Should you, in the face of injustice, should you, in the face of certain trials, actually feel some anger? Should there be some intensity there? Should, should there be some, some indignation? Something's got to be done about this. Popular author wrote this. I, I just, I'm really fascinated by the wording. It is uncorrupted, in its uncorrupted origin, anger is actually a form of love. Anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something we truly care about. You know, if I, if I were to walk out in the parking lot and something was happening to my daughter or my wife, boys can take care of themselves, but if, if, if something was happening to my daughter or my wife, I promise you pretty immediately there would be one emotion present. There, there would be some anger there that says, this will not stand. This will not stand. I'm doing something about this. You know, even as you read stories across our nation, there are certain stories that, that when you're watching them, you might find yourself going, man, that is not right. When I, when I hear these, these little kids being, being crammed into buildings in Texas, and now some of them are actually being sexually molested by people, I'm telling you what, I heard that story, and pretty immediately my heart went, this is not right. I'm ready to get in my van and do something about it. It's wrong. It shouldn't happen. Anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something we truly care about. Now, here's what we've got to understand about righteous indignation. Anger is an aspect of the character of God. I know some of you, some of you don't like to hear that, right? 
You, 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 you like that. You like that New Testament God. Your, your Bible only has 27 books, and it's, and it's the 27th New Testament. And that God's all love, love, love. He never gets ticked off. Actually, he does a couple times, but you ignore those passages. No, that Old Testament God, it's just like, what do you do with that? Well, I'll tell you what you do with that. You receive that too, because if you only accept the New Testament God and not the Old Testament God, you only have half a God, and you have a false God. You have an idol. You need both aspects of who God is. You look at Numbers chapter 11, it says, the people began again to complain about their hardship. The Lord's anger blazed against them and he sent fire to rage among them. Later in the same passage, he gives them quail to eat. And these people, they're snarking down quail like, you know, it's just, it's gross to even watch, ingrates. And it says, God's anger burned against them and he sent a plague. There are times that God became angry over sin, absolutely angry. And yet, Exodus 34 makes an expression that's repeated a few times in Scripture that says the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor will he remain angry forever. How do I know that God is slow to get angry? I'm still here. And you're still here. God recognizes who we are and what we're made of, and he's gracious and compassionate with us. Slow to anger, but... He does get angry. You know Jesus got angry? Oh, we don't like that either, right? We, we, like, our, we like our Jesus movies where Jesus walks all slow and tasty and, and speaks with a British accent. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the Jesus we like. But the Jesus of Mark 10 is really hacked off when little kids want to come to Jesus and the disciples, he doesn't have time for you. Get out of the way. And, and it literally says, Jesus saw what was happening. He became angry with his disciples. What in the world are you guys doing? This is the mission. Let him in. And he lets him in. He has fun with them. And he blesses them. And he, and he treats them as the people created in the image of God that they are. How about this moment? He's angry at the funeral of Lazarus. Now, I don't know. There are a lot of emotions we express at a funeral. I don't know that anger is a top emotion. But this is what happened for Jesus. It says... When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Verse 38 says Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb. What's this anger all about? Is he mad that people are crying? That's not it at all. Well, in fact, in a sense, he is mad that people are crying. He's mad because they never should have been crying. There never should have been a funeral. Human beings should never have had to attend a funeral. Human beings should never have had to go to a hospital. It never should have happened because the world was created in such a way, sinlessly, that death and disease and the effects of sin were never supposed to happen to human beings. And I believe Jesus saw this and inside it brought up some indignation that said it wasn't supposed to be this way, a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. So what does the Bible say about anger? Especially when, when we've been enduring this path, I think a piece of what the Bible says is when you're angry on the long path, you need to take the time to stop and discern. Is this righteous indignation or is this just roiling rage? Am I just mad for the sake of mad? Or is this really something, an emotion being inspired by God and inspired by injustice? I'm going to go to some really common 
verses in the Bible on anger. And I, I go to common verses because I want you to get them and memorize them. It doesn't have to be word for word. Just get it concept for concept. Have it in your heart because, because you're going to deal with this stuff all the time. James 1.19 and 20 says, understand this, dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Why do we get angry? Because we are quick to, because we are slow to listen and way too quick to talk. We think we understand it before it's even out of the other person's mouth, and then we're angry about it, quickly angry about it. He says, no, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And then he says, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. I, I love that line because there, what he's saying there is, there is an anger that produces the righteousness that God desires. It's just not human anger. It's not, it's not our typical tendency to go from one to a thousand in rage. But there is a righteous indignation that God uses within us to do a great work. Ephesians 4 says, and don't sin by letting, letting anger control you. Do you see the way that line is worded? It doesn't say, and don't sin by getting angry. It says, don't sin by being controlled by anger. Anger is an awful lot like fire. It's an awful lot like fire. Yesterday we had steak, Shelly cooked, and the heat of that, that fire was so perfect that the outside of that steak got that nice crispy char going to it, but the inside was still rare enough that it was just, it was an absolutely perfect steak, and in that moment, I thank God for fire. But I don't then love that fire so much that I go, I'm going to go outside and put my hand on it for seven minutes and see what happens. I know that that fire is dangerous. It's, it's got two parts to it, right? The same is true with anger. There can be this part that is righteous indignation, but there can also be this roiling rage that does no good at all because it's controlling us says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives the devil a foothold. Everybody who has a sibling understands a foothold. You remember fighting over the bedroom door. You get your foot in, you win. It's all it takes. Get a foot in, you're going to win. In time, you will win. He gets a foot in the door, in time, he wins, unless you fight against that. This verse is actually quoting Psalm 4.4. Don't sin by letting anger control you think about it overnight and remain silent. So how do I know if what I'm experiencing along the way in this persevering is righteous indignation or just out of control rage? Well, I think he's, we've been given three things. The speed of this kind of indignation is slow. It's slow. It takes time to build. It's controlled. It doesn't control me. I'm not, I'm not in a blind rage. And it results in righteousness. And sadly, we know that a lot of our, our anger results in brokenness. Brokenness of people. Brokenness of relationships. But this kind of anger results in righteousness. Persevere. Persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. I wonder if sitting here today there's some area of life that you have been pretty tempted to give up the fight. You're right at the edge. You're like, you know what? I've tried and tried and tried and I'm just not receiving the result I hoped for. Maybe it's time to quit. 
I'm going to bring the list to you again. It gets hard to persevere when the opposition is overwhelming. Are you facing some form of overwhelming opposition right now? Are the circumstances so unchanging that you feel like you've got to do something radical to cause a shift? Is the promise delayed and you're just tired of, you're tired of being good and doing the right thing? You're ready to make something happen? Is the bad just getting a little worse and a little worse and a little worse and your soul is getting worn out? Are you bored? So bored. And you're just thinking, if I quit and do something else, maybe the boredom will go away. It'll be back in about two weeks, just in a different form, I promise you. Look at those five things and land on the one where you're most tempted today to quit. Get your circumstance in mind. Where are you ready today to throw in the towel on the race? Now that you've identified it, you can have a conversation with God about it. You can talk to God about it. You can ask him for wisdom to know what to do. You can ask him for strength to persevere, to keep pushing. You can ask him to bring people into your life that will help. Other teammates. Talk to him about it. And take it with you to communion. Remember all the suffering Jesus went through? That was no easy road either, was it? All that suffering. He persevered to the end to give you salvation. So take that with you to communion. Uh, while communion is happening, there's going to be a video playing with a, with a, with a woman quoting uh, some thoughts that I think fit beautifully with what we're talking about today. So take those things in. And look to God today for the strength and the ability to persevere. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you were faithful to the very end. To die, be buried, and rise again so that we can have eternal life and a fresh start. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Give us the strength to persevere in whatever stage of the journey we are in right now. Help us to never quit. I don't, I don't know if Sunday earworms you, it does me. So we did that song last week. And that line, I, I just can't get over it. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven is lost. Every, every time I hear that line and I sing that line, it's like I have every classic movie flash through my mind when, you know, the powers of evil were coming on. They were just coming on with intensity. And the hero is laying there dead. And everybody thinks all hope is lost. And then the hero blinks. And you're like, ha, 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 you're in trouble now, bud. You are in trouble now. And that's exactly what happened to Satan on Easter Sunday. That blink happened and it was like, oh, you are in trouble now. The one who was promised that heel is coming down on that head and it's crushing that head. And there will come a day, there will come a day that we will live in a state with no dying, no sin, no disease. It will be perfect. It will be wonderful. We will be in the presence presence of Jesus. Please live in that reality. That is what is really real. You're looking too much at the things you can see. You're looking too much at the brokenness around you, and you think that is really real. No, the heel is on its head, 
And it won't be long now, it won't be long now before we live in the complete victory of everything that Jesus has done. So as you walk from this place today, don't just persevere because you feel a little inspired. That's not what it's all about. You persevere because you got your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't take your eyes off him. No matter what your life is saying around you, persevere, push through. And then, as you do that, be back here next week because we are going to have a fun time. We're going to support these kids and cheer for these kids. They've done a ton of hard work, and Slave Master Dana is going to make them do more this week. You should be in here when she's directing these kids. It is like the Egyptian taskmaster. Come on, kids, sing, sing. She's never like that. Jason, on the other hand, anyway, you have a great day. It's good to see you.